This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 27th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Most people remain unaware that federal lands are used for more than recreation, but it's generally impossible for conservationists to put in bids to make use of public lands, specifically to conserve species. Holly Fretwell is a research fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. We spoke in June. For a lot of environmental groups, uh, they view uh, public lands pretty much as it should be recreation or nothing. Uh, But we do have uh, federal lands that are routinely used for grazing, uh, timber harvesting in some cases. Uh, But what else are, and recreation, of course, but what else do we use public lands for? Some mining? We also have mining on public lands. Uh, We have public lands that are set aside really for critical habitat, diversity, uh, Forest management. Some I think are set aside for wildfire. <laughs> uh, we sort of leave them to, to, you know, leave them to burn just because we're not managing them in other ways. But there is no ability for people to lease public lands specifically for conservation. That's correct. On the federal lands, you cannot lease it for conservation. In fact, if you are interested in a grazing allocation and you think that this is better habitat for a grizzly bear and you would like to bid against the rancher that is leasing that land, you can't do that. You can't do it for a couple of reasons. One, because our grazing leases, um, you have to have a base property attached to it. But secondly, even if you own that base property, you also have to graze on that land in order to maintain that lease. So if you want to see some ad- alternative uses of that landscape, you literally have to go through the political process and try to change the lease allocation rather than just making some trade and working with either the the agency or the individual that's leasing that land. Because if you're not grazing livestock on it, then you will lose that lease. What would that look like? It's, it, it doesn't sound complicated, but there has to be something else to it, the way it, it would that would be set up. Because, I, I mean, intuitively, I like the idea the idea that um, you know grazing cattle or you know other livestock, you know that costs money, and we don't really know what the market rate is for that in many cases because the only possible use that that land can be put to is grazing or nothing. And yeah, tell me how that works. Okay, actually, there are groups out there that have bid against others to try to. Um, use these land for other uses, wildlife habitat being one, grizzly bears, wolves. And because they get sort of caught up in the regulations, they're not allowed to um, lease that land for these uses. They've decided that they're going to try to buy out the ranchers. And so they will they will buy them out and try to find alternative land for these individuals to graze on. So the rancher is is maintained whole. But then they have to go through the political process and actually change the use of that landscape so that the the agency doesn't just put more cattle on that land and just, just doesn't release that allocation to somebody else. But we could imagine that that wildlife advocate could actually bid on that landscape to lease the land for conservation, to lease it for some other use, maybe to lease it for a desert tortoise instead of cattle if we're in the southwest, maybe to lease it uh, for sage grouse 
uh, and, and other types of habitat. One thing we need to consider is that when we're looking at cattle and ranchers, those individuals have these leases and they've, in, for the most part, have had them for years and years and years. And the U.S. government actually realizes the value of that grazing lease in their land. And that is that that value is actually capitalized in their, in their homes and in their property values. So just allowing them to have, um, allowing wildlife advocates to have alternative bid options really is a slight takings from the, the ranchers in the sense that they're losing what we call a privilege, but that actually our laws, our tax laws have determined is a right because it's actually been capitalized in the value of their landscape and therefore they pay taxes on that on that enhanced property value. So we need to make sure that we make our ranchers whole too because they, they, they really do have some valid existing right. But nonetheless, we could think about maybe subletting some of those landscapes. And if a wildlife group wants to come in and see a certain area that to allow for grizzly bears instead of for cattle, then they could actually go to the rancher and say, look, we want to make a deal with you. We want to make a trade. And by allowing those trades, we're going to move these resources um, and resource uses to higher values and to alternative uses that people are really looking for, rather than going through the political process, actually through trades. So rather than lobbying government and, and costing taxpayers a lot of money to maybe get some additional wildlife or conservation, we're actually negotiating with each other so that it's a win-win deal. One of my concerns that you've somewhat laid to rest is the idea that environmental groups are very uh, interested in leveraging the government to achieve conservationist ends. Um, but you're saying that they're also, they're willing, many of them are willing to put their money where their mouth is and and uh, actually pay money for these leases to uh, protect species. That's correct. Right now, the only way they can do this is by going through the political process or what we call political environmentalism. But if we allow for some alternative bid options or what we would, may call conservation leases, we could actually see these trades taking place. And environmental groups have come up to the plate and said, yes, we are willing to put our money out there, but the government is not willing to take that money. Another example is Terry Tempest Williams actually bid on a mining um, lease trying to, she really wanted to keep the minerals in the ground rather than have the minerals pulled out of the ground. She actually won the bid on that, but later it was taken away because in order for the government to propose a, a mineral lease and a mineral option, you have to remove the minerals from the ground. You, you are not allowed by law to leave those minerals in the ground. It's, and it's interesting because they're, obviously minerals have value and people pay money in order to extract them. Why shouldn't someone be prohibited from uh, paying that same amount of money or more in order to not extract minerals from the land? From a market perspective, it seems silly to not allow people to present their their values and, and make use of those values. And that's what we do in a capitalist system. And that's how, how, how markets work and how markets signal to us that there are higher valued uses. And given the... the public lands management that we have and the laws and regulations that we have, we are simply not allowed to move to different valued uses. We can think of our society right now and we're changing those demands, we're changing our desires. We have much greater um, demand for, for recreation, for outdoor opportunities, for conservation, because we can afford to do that now. But given the, the political situation and the, and the regulations that we have on our public lands, we don't have the option to move those lands into alternative uses, even if 
if we see them as higher-valued uses and people are willing to put their, their money where their mouth is and they're willing to pay out to protect those landscapes. They have to do it through the political process. They can't do it through a cooperative trade. I think uh, most people only learned that federal lands are used for mining, grazing, timber harvesting, and you know extractive uses. And uh, that when the president recently sort of decertified certain lands as monuments and put them back into the category of just regular federal lands. It's interesting that when the president decided to look at national monuments and determine if they should be reduced in size, that people came up in arms that we are losing our public lands. Because in fact, national monuments are already public lands, and it's just a change in the designation of how those lands are going to be used. And oftentimes, there are existing uses that will continue on those landscapes. But it restricts the ability for different resource users to get into those lands and, and just demonstrate what those valued uses are. This is a policy change. Uh, is there anybody championing it besides you, of course? I think there are a lot of people that are really interested in allowing our public lands to move towards different uses and to think about what those alternative uses are. People are afraid, especially environmental groups, are afraid to allow for changes because right now they have to use the political process to to have any sway in in the landscape or on the landscape. They have a lot of sway on the landscape oftentimes simply by being the loudest voice. And so they oftentimes win these conservation values through the political process. But I think under the Trump administration, they're realizing that some wins really aren't long-term wins. They're maybe short-term wins. As Trump looks at, at different issues and says, nope, you know, we're going to change this regulation or maybe we're going to change the size of that national monument. And suddenly people are starting to realize that the political process may not be the best means to the ends that they're looking for. So people are starting to look a little more closely at alternative mechanisms. And one of those alternative mechanisms is looking at allowing for trades, looking for allowing, allowing for conservation leases or other types of leases that would allow different uses on the landscapes. So though we at PERC um, are oftentimes alone, alone in the, the wilderness, as it has been said in the past, I think we're gaining a lot of traction because people are starting to realize that allowing markets really allows for cooperative trades and cooperation rather than the, the conflict that comes from the political environmentalism that we've seen in the past. And, you know, I've, I've talked with some other folks, John Wood, I've talked to Reed Watson about uh, how species protection gets done under the Endangered Species Act. And, you know, it's it's a, a, a similar case where people can actually be punished pretty severely for even discovering that a an endangered species or a threatened species is on their land or is, is it's a, their land is a habitat. That's right. And sometimes their land doesn't even have to be a habitat, but maybe a potential habitat, or maybe it was a potential habitat, historically speaking. And so they're losing rights to use their land because maybe someday an endangered species will be on that landscape, rather than motivating these people to enhance the habitat so that they get an endangered species on it, so that then they can they can celebrate the fact that they are good, good stewards of the land. Yeah. The, um, po the point that John Wood makes is uh, you know, of all the species that have be that have fallen into that endangered category, so few of them have ever emerged from it. 
That, that's right. So it's under the Endangered Species Act, it seems as though we actually are saving species, but we're not actually protecting them and enhancing their habitat. We're not losing a ton uh, to extinction, yet we're not providing additional habitat for them either because we're not providing the proper incentives to our land managers. And that, that includes on, on our public lands and on our private lands, because when we're looking at those endangered species, we are essentially just setting aside that land and, and cutting off other uses uh, regardless. So with respect to uh, grazing, we'll say grazing versus conservation or grazing versus other uses or mining versus other uses and that sort of thing. Is there a sense of what that would actually do to say like the price of beef? I mean, you said they're already paying taxes in a way. So they're, they're paying on the, the value of this land that they are leasing. Uh, but is it, do we have a sense that these guys who are grazing on public lands that they are not paying a market rate or is there any way to know? I think that our, our public land grazers, they pay, their lease rate is actually less than what is paid on the state lands um, if we do a side-by-side -side comparison, but the, but the leases are very different. On our public lands, the, the, the ranchers have to provide the fencing and the water and other things that is oftentimes provided for on the state lands or if they're leasing from other private landowners. The concern that many people have is that it's going to change the flavor of various different communities, and, and that's very likely so. So, for example, if we go to eastern Montana and look at what American Prairie Reserve is doing, they are actually working within the existing laws to try to enhance grazing and, and recreate what they're calling the American Serengeti. And to do this, they are taking private lands that they own. They are offering to buy out ranchers in the region, voluntary sales if they're interested in buying. And they are leasing some of the public lands that exist there and trying to put bison on the landscape instead of cattle. Now, bison are considered livestock. They do have to go through a change in permit process to do this. But bison are considered livestock, so they can actually put the bison out there on the, the federal allocation, um, and that is acceptable. What's happening, though, in eastern Montana is there's a number of ranchers that are afraid that it's going to change what's happening in their uh, urban communities, and, and it definitely is going to change what's happening out there. If we're, if we're create, recreating a huge landscape, and we're talking something like 3.5 million acres, that instead of being cattle grazing is now this... this wildlife restoration area where we have bison and uh, cougars and bears back out on the landscape. So and from a conservation perspective, it's a wonderful thing. From a community perspective, it's going to change that. Which is better? I don't know. That depends upon your perspective. But if we look at going back in history, we don't want to go back to the horse and buggy, so we need to allow things to move forward. Change, change is Change is real. Change is what happens. But there are certain people that are going to be harmed from that change, and, and, and we need to understand what's happening to those individuals as well. Holly Fretwell is a research fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Play. And when you think about it, say, Alexa, play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>